WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Today we're discussing what it means to be a good ally. To be an ally is to take the struggle on as your own and to amplify the voices of the oppressed. Instead of you speaking for them, you should allow them to take the mic and for them to speak as well. Today, we're here to talk to Lauren Collier-Sprue about her research on how to be a good ally. Lauren, can you please tell us about yourself and your research? My name is Lauren Collier-Sprue. I'm a doctoral candidate in organizational psychology here at Michigan State University. And my research topics of interest include things like employee selection and diversity and inclusion initiatives at work, specifically determining whether or not the initiatives are effective. Thanks for joining us this morning. You gave a couple of examples there on the different focus areas that you study within your work when it comes to employee resources and selection. One of those topics that Chelsea had briefly mentioned was allyship. Why is allyship important in the employee space and how can that be used to improve the climate of a company? Allyship can be very key for inclusion at work because oftentimes And there's a great deal of research in this realm as well. But a lot of times when people are coming forward and proposing inclusion initiatives or diversity initiatives, if you are from a member of a group that is underrepresented, there are perceptions that maybe you're seeking out special treatment or seeking out something that will help you. Whereas for allies, that perception, at least in research, has not been found. They're not seen as doing it for self-oriented reasons when they're standing up for something that doesn't directly benefit them. And when allies are effective and standing up whenever people are, for example, making biased comments at work or seeking to rectify inequities like a pay gap or advocating for more people of various groups to be in leadership, that could change the whole climate of the workplace when done well. Yeah, Lauren, I agree. It's really important to be an ally to help promote a positive environment in the company. Can you please expand a little bit more about your research in regards to allyship? Sure. So when looking into effective and ineffective ally behaviors, we conducted three studies. And we wanted to make sure that we started our first study by considering the perspectives of people in marginalized groups, which is not typically where allyship research tends to start. So we sought out a sample of individuals from marginalized groups and assigned them to one of two conditions. One condition, they were asked to describe an experience that they've had with somebody who they consider to be an effective ally. The other group was assigned to write about an experience that they had with an ineffective ally. We then measured a variety of psychological outcomes, including things like anxiety, psychological safety, which is kind of the degree to which you feel you can be yourself specifically around that ally and other things like that to see whether or not there were differences in the groups between people who had to describe an effective ally and those who had to describe an ineffective ally. And the goal in doing this was to see whether it mattered at all what kind of ally somebody was in terms of the outcome of how marginalized group members feel. And what we found was that the ineffective ally group tended to rate that they would have overall higher levels of anxiety, overall lower levels of psychological safety, emotionality type things. They would have more negative affect, less positive affect compared to the group that described the effective ally. 
And so from that study, we were able to determine that it does matter how good of an ally somebody is because engaging in ineffective behaviors is actually harmful to members of marginalized groups. In my mind, I was thinking about how this research could be performed and how you're able to measure the levels of effectiveness between the ineffective and effective ally groups. Do you bring people in to train them on what an effective ally is or what an ineffective ally is without them knowing? And then do you introduce them to another individual to have an interaction with? How does this work? That's a good question and something that I know myself and other members of the research team went back and forth on quite a bit. So for us, we decided to do an entirely online survey style study to conduct this entire project. So what we did was we gave a few definitional phrases to kind of explain to people what we're looking for when we mean effective ally and an effective ally, but we left it mostly up to the participant to decide whether the person they were talking about fell into the effective or ineffective category. And we wanted to do this because we considered members of marginalized groups to be subject matter experts on the topic of ally performance. Because oftentimes people have many years of experience of either having effective allies or having people who you thought would be effective allies, but potentially ultimately let you down. And so we chose to leave the discretion up to our participants to tell us who was who. I really like that the participants were able to say whether their ally was effective or ineffective instead of being told by you and your research group. Whenever they were categorizing these allies, were they supposed to choose a specific person like their boss or their coworkers, for example, or did they just pick anyone that they thought about? For this study, we also left that to the discretion of the participant, but we did ask them to specify their relationship with the person that they listed as an ally. Most of the people actually fell into the close friend category. I think about 26% of the participants described their ally as a close friend. But also around the ballpark of 21% described their allies being a complete stranger. And so it was interesting to see the various types of people that would come up during the course of the study as serving in the ally role. We found that close friends and strangers actually did not differ from one another in being effective or ineffective allies. So you could be an effective ally and be a complete stranger to someone. You could be a close friend who was not a great ally. And so that was another interesting thing to find. That's interesting that 21% of the people that were described as allies were actually complete strangers. You had mentioned earlier that your research is consisting of these three different projects, or the first one you focused on was based on the perspectives of allyship. Could you expand on what your second project was? Sure. For the second study, we really wanted to build on the results of the first study. So once we had a variety of open-ended responses to what makes somebody an effective ally, what makes somebody an ineffective ally... The next step was to figure out how to make something that we could kind of go forth and measure it quantitatively. So we wanted to develop our own measure of effective and ineffective ally behaviors. I generated 422 survey items that were meant to tap into effective behaviors and ineffective behaviors. And we did a lot of statistical analyses to try to bring down the number of items to something that could be responded to in a normal psychological scale. And so from that work, we were able to come up with 24 items, 12 representing effective behaviors and 12 representing ineffective behaviors that really stood out, were validated as representing effective behaviors and ineffective behaviors of allies. I know that earlier I had asked you what was an effective ally, 
But now that you're saying you had gathered these 24 items that you had asked these people about ineffective versus non-effective behavior, can you tell us a little bit about those behaviors that you had put on the survey? Yeah, behaviors of effective allies, for example, would be characterized as things like making sure that the person's needs were considered, helping them communicate their thoughts to people with privilege, insisting that other people treat the person like a human being, advocating when they notice that the person was treated worse than others, speaking up for them when they're ignored, protecting them from verbal harassment, and rallying support when the person would be discriminated against. The final items that ended up in the survey were the ones that we found by kind of presenting what we had to an entirely new sample of people to see where the items fell out, which ones grouped together well, and which ones we could feel confident in keeping for our final measure. So following the analyses, we found that items that would fall into the ineffective ally behavior category would be examples like refuse to listen to my concerns, asked me inappropriate questions about my identity, made offensive comments about my group, did not address the offensive behaviors of others, made excuses for the biased comments of others, and was patronizing toward me were examples of ineffective behaviors. You would think that people would think these behaviors are ineffective, but microaggressions are always happening in the workplace, and people don't even realize that they're performing these microaggressions sometimes. Between these two studies, did you use the information from the first study to create the questions for the second study that you had just described? Each of these studies had their own sample. So we selected one group of people for the first study and an entirely second group of people for the second study. All of the questions that were created for the second study came directly from the qualitative findings that we found in the first study. For each participant's response, I would generate one to three questions based on what they shared about their experience. And from there, we actually engaged in a little bit of qualitative coding to help determine which questions should end up in the final survey. And from there, we presented it to the entirely different second group of people, had them respond to it, and then used factor analysis specifically to help us determine which items to keep and which ones would not end up in the final scale. I'm glad that you kept the participants separate throughout the study, especially because you were able to gather the questions from the first group of people to then translate it to the questions for the second group of people. You had mentioned something called factor analysis, and it's not something that we've mentioned too much over here on the Sci-Files. Can you please explain to our audience what is factor analysis? Oftentimes in psychological research, we're trying to get a sense of what people think of things and what their perspectives are. And so the best way to do this is by asking them what their perspectives are. We usually will create a list of items and then present it to a certain subset of the people that we're trying to measure. And we'll use those responses to help us determine which items seem to go together and which items don't really make sense to keep in the scale. And so factor analysis is one way to help us determine which items go best together when we're trying to measure something very specific. In the case of my study, I wanted to make sure that all of the items that represented ineffective ally behaviors fit together well. And so the ones that ended up being selected into my final measure were all things that fit together quite well. Same for the effective behaviors measure. All of those items also had what we call high factor loadings which means that they all fit together well. And those were kept for the effective behavioral measure, 
When we do this, we feel more confident that we have a measure that is tapping into the construct of interest in the best way possible. Now that we have a deep understanding on both of the studies that you perform within this research project, what does the third project comprise of and how do you build on the work that you've done within those first two studies? For the third study, we wanted to see how members of majority groups, this would be individuals who fall into the category of white, heterosexual, cisgendered, engage in allyship behaviors more broadly and get a sense of how they respond to three different workplace scenarios. So what we did was we just showed them the scenarios of discriminatory events, also drawn from the first study, and asked them open-ended, how would you respond? Each participant would write out their response, and then following their response, we would also ask them whether they would engage in any of the behaviors that we had developed for the survey in the second study. The final thing they did was completed a variety of personality measures, and we wanted to use that to determine whether or not there were any personality measures. So for the third study, we asked members of majority groups, so this would be individuals who are white, heterosexual, cisgendered, to respond to three workplace scenarios. And we asked them specifically to write out what they would do if they were in the situation, they were witnessing what they saw in the scenarios. These open-ended responses were coded by trained individuals who are used to working with open-ended responses to determine the number of effective behaviors and the number of ineffective behaviors each participant engaged in. In addition to this qualitative measure, we also used the survey that we had from the second study, reframed it so that a person is talking about themselves rather than reporting on someone else, and asked each participant to note which behaviors they engaged in or would engage in for each scenario to get a second measure of allyship behavior. Lastly, participants then completed a variety of personality measures, which we then wanted to use to see which personality measures, things like their willingness to learn about marginalized groups, their moral identity, the degree to which they have empathy and perspective taking, whether or not they engage in behaviors because they're motivated to not appear prejudiced. We looked at a variety of these things so that we would be able to determine which ones could be related to engaging in effective behaviors and which ones could be related to engaging in ineffective behaviors. That's a really cool study. Someone's willingness to learn and to find the resources to help better themselves is really important. And as you were saying, like things like their morals and their identity and their perspectives are also things that are important as well, because it has to do like with the foundation of who they are. I especially liked how you said that some people may do things to appear to be not prejudiced. And that's something that personally irks me because I don't like whenever people just do something just to fit in or just because they want to please people. It should be because they actually want to do it and that they want to be a supporter and an ally for people who are underrepresented. How do you define someone's morals and how do you conduct this survey without being biased? Social desirability bias is something that comes up quite frequently in conversation and psychological research. A great deal of the time, we are asking people to self-report on a variety of things that we're hoping to measure psychologically. So, for example, moral identity. We would just be asking people to rate their own self-importance of moral identity using items that are measured on a one to five scale. However, for the measure of 
allyship behaviors where we were asking people to write in their open-ended response in terms of what they would do. Um, In doing that, we were hoping to get a slightly more accurate measure of what they were, what they would actually do in that situation. Rather than asking them to self-report and check a box on our scale that we created, we, we did figure in that there would be some sort of social desirability bias there. However, for the survey items that measured like personality or willingness to learn about marginalized groups, all of that was based on the participants' perspective and what they self-reported. In research, many people who are involved in psychological research are often making trade-offs. And oftentimes, study design, the measures that are selected, are often influenced by who is running the study. To the degree that that can be mitigated, I think it's helpful to have more than one person involved in study planning, measure selection, etc., in order to cut down on the number of biases that might influence what goes into a study. On our end, having more than one person involved in the research, getting feedback from a lab team in terms of what makes sense to include, what makes sense to maybe not include at this time, is one of the checks that we do usually. However, it's also important to note that any study, the researcher who is conducting the study will have their own unique biases, and these biases can't be separated from the study that one is conducting. Biases are always something that's difficult to keep out of a survey, but it's great that you acknowledge and have dealt with that in your studies. By now, our audience has heard a lot of info about what makes an ineffective and effective ally, but what are some underlying aspects of allyship that exist that people don't really consider on a regular basis. Many times when people think of the word ally, it's very tempting to imagine it as a noun, but I encourage listeners to imagine it as a verb. Allyship takes work, and it does take a lot of self-reflection, self-development, and being in it for the long haul in order to be the best that you can be in terms of meeting your goal of helping individuals from marginalized groups and standing in the gap for them. And I think that oftentimes when that's not acknowledged, when it's not acknowledged that allyship is work, it kind of does the whole thing a disservice. You bring up really good points, Lauren. There are a lot of things that people can do to be an effective ally. However, something I've noticed, not only at MSU, something that I see a lot like in graduate school right now is that a lot of departments will try to recruit people who are underrepresented, which is great. I highly recommend people do that. But Something that ends up happening after is that those students that are in the departments that are underrepresented will then be called upon to do a lot of work for DEI, for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Whenever these students are put in this position, they naturally do want to support other people who are also underrepresented, and they also do want to help bring up the community. But this puts a lot of strain on people, especially because they're trying to get their degrees at the same time. Instead, something I've noticed, these students end up leading these DEI initiatives, and it's a very few amount of students. Instead, it should be a community of people, especially people who are already privileged through societal standards, to help lift up these voices and to work together to do more. So my question to you now is, how can we do that? How can we break the norm to have everyone work together to help bring equity to all? Specifically for graduate programs, if the goal is to increase diversity and increase the retention of individuals from marginalized groups, it is important at all stages of the game, but now more than ever, that everybody is involved in diversity and inclusion work. It should not fall solely on the shoulders of graduate students who are also from marginalized groups, 
or even faculty members from marginalized groups, it's important that everyone does the work. Oftentimes, this work is unpaid. It doesn't count toward graduate student performance evaluations. And it's not equitable to expect that individuals who are already marginalized should have to do this work because it's intrinsically important to them. Instead, everyone should do the work and there should be some evaluation component as well. So building it into your graduate school system could be important. Noting not just how many publications somebody's pushing out, but what have they done for diversity and inclusion as part of their yearly evaluation could be one way to make sure that people learn to prioritize it and that people actually engage beyond the people who are already doing the work, who are often already marginalized themselves. Yeah, I agree with you, Lauren, that if people are serious about solving the issue of systemic racism and inequities, it can't just be left to the person who's being oppressed to solve the problem. It involves the entire community to work together. Thanks again for joining us today to talk to us about your work on allyship, and we hope to talk to you about your other research in a future interview. Thanks for having me. The sci House is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Daniel Puentes on Impact 89FM. Thank you to our news director, Taylor Halterman, Program Director Amber Konutsky, Station Manager Joe Dandrin, and General Manager Jeremy Whiting. The SciFiles can be found online on SciFiles.org and on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on SciFiles, or if you have any questions, you can contact us at SciFiles at impact9fm.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth is in the science. <laughs>